Let's pray, shall we, just before we uh, come to God's word together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness towards us that uh, we see and we've sung in this psalm together. And Lord, as we reflect on it further, pray that you might speak to us again this morning of your goodness towards us. Thank you that, Father, in your goodness, you haven't left us alone. You haven't left us uh, left wondering what you would ask of us or what it is to follow you, what it is to know a life of flourishing. But Lord, you speak to us uh, through your word. And Lord, we expect and hope and ask that this morning you would speak to us, speak through me, uh, I pray. And Lord, would you mould us and shape us in our hearts and in our souls or to be your people uh, amidst the world where you've put us. For your glory, we ask it. Amen. Well, I want to begin by asking a question of you here. Why is it that we actually struggle to really believe that God is good? Or perhaps we could put it another way to ask, well, what do I do when actually I'm not sure of God's goodness? How could it be that we would actually find this a struggle. Let me share with you just a few uh, verses from Genesis chapter 3. Because what I want to say firstly is, and to put this in some context is, why is it a struggle to believe that God is good? Because it has always been the struggle. Listen to these words here. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice what The adversary, the serpent, the snake, Satan does here. He challenges them as to whether they are really to trust in God's goodness. Look, he says, God is not good. He's holding out on you. He says, did God say you shall not eat of any tree? He's holding out on you. He says he's not good. He's lying to you. You shall not surely die. And he says that God is not good. He's holding you back. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like him. And what do they both, because it's it's both Adam and Eve here, isn't it, who participate in this. Adam's silence doesn't get him off the hook here. They both realize that the fruit will make them feel good. This is good for food. They realize it looks good to them. It's a delight to the eyes. And they realize this might make me look good. This is desired to make one wise. And then look at those results. 
They become self-conscious. They become shameful. They become fearful. They isolate themselves. Don't we also struggle to always believe that all that is good is found in God and that I don't have to look beyond God for anything that is good? Don't we know that struggle? And that's why we struggle with it. We've always struggled with it. And here's David's answer. What do you do when you're in that place and in that moment in which you might be tempted to doubt God's goodness? Look at here in these first seven verses here. We're introduced to God's goodness. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I didn't grow up in a sort of very posh area. Across the road from me was a local drug baron who some years later was eventually apprehended. Uh, next door to me was a dog fighting ring and uh, the neighbour above us could best be described as private security. I didn't come from a very sort of well-to-do area. So amongst many sort of uh, challenges of assimilation uh, in, into sort of perhaps more friendly uh, culture. It came as some surprise to me that there's a difference between off-license wine and good wine. Um, In one of my previous sort of uh, pastorships, uh, I I became very friendly with the local undertakers. Uh, Sadly, we we, we did a lot of work together. Um, But one of the things they would do is from time to time, I don't know, they must have taken a shine to me or something, uh, you know, they'd wine and dine me. and, And I'd find myself, you know, at these really nice restaurants and things, you know, and I put on the one suit that I owned, which was the funeral suit, uh, and go with them and sort of, you know, enjoy very much uh, the food and things, but uh, very much not really in, in my comfort zone. Uh, at one of these occasions, uh, myself and Karis were invited to this uh, country manor, and they put on this lovely dinner and sort of in the interlude between things, they had uh, wine tasting. Um, and they introduce, you know, all these great wines, all these different regions. They tell you all the sort of distinctive sort of flavor notes and things like that. And of course, I can't taste any of that. You know, it, it tastes okay. It tastes like wine. Uh, but you know, this, this wasn't the cheap stuff. This was really good wine. At least so they told me. I couldn't really keep up and had to sort of uh, subtly sort of push my glasses in front of other people. Uh, so it wasn't noticed. I wasn't sort of drinking all of it. Uh, But the good stuff always has a host. The good stuff always has a host, doesn't it? Whether it's someone who introduces you to that album, or to that restaurant, or to a holiday destination, perhaps. Or perhaps they introduce you to a friend that you just must meet, my friend here. David here plays host for us to the most supremely good thing. The goodness of God. And that's what he's doing here in these first seven verses. He's so good that you have no need to look elsewhere ever again. At first we see his plug here in the first three verses here for God. And then he also gives his personal story of how he experiences this in verses four to seven. And all of this is all the more amazing because perhaps if if you have your Bible open there with you, you might see with me the uh, note that's given to us before the text actually starts that tells us that this is a psalm of David uh, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. This is a rather polite sort of way of uh, filling us in on just the uh, dysfunction and chaos in David's life, either at the time he's writing this or just 
before maybe he wrote this. Saul is currently the king of Israel. You can read about this later in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, And although he's king, his reign is doomed. He's trying to kill David, who is the one who's destined to reign, but it's not yet. He's on the run for his life from Saul, and he flees to Gath. Now, that might not sound as strange as it really was in its context. Gath was the city of Goliath. Yes, the Goliath that David had killed. And what's more, actually, we read that David at this point is carrying Goliath's sword with him. And the people of Gath remember all of David's great military victories. And here he is, surely, in the place of all places in which he is not going to be welcome, where he's going to be persona non grata, surely. Why is he here? Is, is he just here to gloat again over all the things he's done? Is, is this the beginning of another attack? Why does he look here for help? Surely he's not going to find any help in Gath. But because God is good, even when David has been pushed aside, he's been put down, his life is threatened, God's goodness has been all over his life. And his only hope he sort of really feels here is to sort of feign insanity. And so that's what he ends up doing. And the description it gives us in First Samuel is that David essentially looks quite like, if you've ever seen the movie Cast Away with Tom Hanks, that's what he looks like. And at this moment, David reminds himself and us of God's goodness. He tells us, verse 1 here, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David stops in the midst of chaos and the calamity and realigns his heart. Because what we believe shapes our affections that produces our behavior. To put it another way, what we think, what's in our head, shapes what's in our heart, what we love, what we fear, what motivates us, that then produces our actions, that is what we do with our hands. And so he stops and realigns his heart here. My soul makes its boast in the Lord here. Like that host, like that sommelier who makes these boasts of all these great wines. Here, taste this, taste these flavors. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. My soul is satisfied in him. This is how good God really is that he can say this whilst uh, feigning insanity and whilst a fugitive. It shows us that actually following God works. It says, let the humble hear and be glad. And you know, sometimes you need that humility to actually accept your need of God. To realize that your self-sufficiency, trying to make things work for yourself, has not worked. It actually requires a certain amount of humility, doesn't it? That's not an easy thing to accept sometimes. To accept that this hasn't worked, but that following God does. And so he says, I will magnify the Lord. Magnify the Lord with me. That is, make much of the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And there's that call to join with him. See, the things of this world aren't good, but God is. 
The things of this world promise to be good, they claim to be good, but they leave us feeling empty. They leave us feeling as though we need something more or something else. Don't you know that? That great car that looks so good now, in five years' time, loses its allure. That job you thought would be the answer to your happiness starts to become just as frustrating as the last. That relationship you thought would be the answer to all your feelings of loneliness actually becomes a source of loneliness. The things of this world leave us feeling empty, leave us feeling as though we need something more, something else. But God leaves us full. And now David makes this transition now to, uh, from this call to make much of God, now to share his experience of God's goodness. He says, verse 4 here, I sought the Lord and he answered me. The, the word sought there, uh, you know, in the English, uh, it doesn't do justice to so much of this psalm because one of the other footnotes you might have on this uh, will tell you that this is an acrostic poem, that every line in the Hebrew begins uh, with the next sort of letter in the alphabet there again. So there's so much thought and beauty that's gone into this that in the English we just don't quite sort of have in the same way. But the word there, sought, is to, to beat out a path. I've, I've made a way toward him and he's answered me. There's both that sort of determination and action that comes there. You know, this seeking after God, what, what isn't it? Because that might help you see what it is. It, it isn't the kind of seeking that my kids do when I ask them to go find something from their room. And I know full well that they don't look past their elbow. It's not the kind of looking that I do at something when, uh, this is the old days now, isn't it? Maybe in some ways I almost sort of miss this. But, you know, when you'd walk through town and you'd have those charity representatives, you know, come up to you and try to uh, get you to commit to give money. And I'd say to them, yeah, can you just give me a pamphlet I'll look at? And I'll I'll look at that later. And I know full well I'm not going to look at it. I'm just trying to politely say, please, can you let me (laughs) get to where I need to get to? This isn't that. This is beating out a path towards something. This is that kind of determination, an action that you do to, to build a career to make a relationship work, to find a home, to provide for your family. I saw him and he answered me. He's delivered me from all my fears, it tells us, verse 4. But also, skip ahead a couple of verses here to verse 6. This poor man, that is David, him, cried and he saved him out of all of his troubles. Deliver me from all my fears, save me out of all of my troubles. We fear much more things than the troubles we actually face. But God has delivered him from both. And now in verses 4 and 6 here, we get two experiences, and then in 5 and 7, two truths, and they kind of match together there, because in verse 5 here, we're told that those who look to him are radiant. Not only has he answered his call here, not only has he delivered him from fears and out of his troubles, but they are now radiant. He's radiant. God is good, and the things of the world are not. The things of the world promise to be good. They claim to be, but they leave you feeling dirty. 
whereas God leaves you feeling radiant. Things of the world leave you feeling dirty, don't they? Whether it's approval. It promises to you that if only you can have the approval of that person or of that group, or if only you can avoid the disapproval of that person or that group of people, you'll feel good. And yet, it leaves you feeling dirty, doesn't it? The way that you have to manoeuvre to achieve that. The way that you might have to gossip and spin your way to gain that approval, to avoid that disapproval, does that not leave you feeling dirty? Or perhaps it could be food, couldn't it? You think it will help you feel better. You think, oh, this is just going to help me feel more alive at this moment. And yet actually can leave you feeling worse about yourself afterwards, can't it? Things of the world leave you feeling dirty. God leaves you feeling radiant. We can trust God delivers here because, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. That's the reality. That's the protection he's giving here. And so David is this host to God's goodness. So have you known God's goodness? But secondly, who are you introducing to God's goodness in this way? David is seeking to introduce us, all who will hear, to God's goodness. Who are we introducing to God's goodness in this way? Sharing our experience of God's goodness in our lives and sharing the truth of his goodness in the world. God's goodness is introduced secondly here, verses 8 to 14. We see the experience of God's goodness. Um, One of the programs I used to really enjoy watching for a bit of sort of relaxation is MasterChef The Professionals. And... um, I'm probably a bit like this anyway. I, I liked it sort of in the older era uh, where you used to have Michelle Rue Jr. on there and, and his sous chef, Monica Galetti. I, I know they've got great chefs still now, but I, I just really liked them. And the best part of the show for me actually wasn't watching the contestants. So I, I was less interested in that, really. Um, what I loved was there was one section every time where they do a masterclass. And you would see them just in their kitchen and they would cook something. They'd take you through the whole process of it. You'd see how long it took, how much effort and energy and creativity. And I just found it the most amazing and relaxing thing to watch uh, a master at work at something they love and are brilliant at. And yet, it's the most frustrating part of the programme because, of course, come the end of it, what do you want to do? Well, you want to eat it. Uh, And here's the reality too, with God's goodness. It's not a thing to be talked about or, or to be reflected upon so much as it is to be experienced, to be tasted here. And here's the challenge that David gives us to put it to the test. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He appeals again to a sense. He's challenged us before to seek, to look. And now he challenges us to taste it, to experience it, to appreciate it, to savor it. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Not only protected from disaster, it would have been a relief to David in his context, wouldn't it? But positively blessed. And yet there's this strange twist, I think, isn't there, in verse 9. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Does that perhaps seem slightly strange, that it's those who fear God who find no lack? Is it right to fear God, or is it Is that good? Well, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that fear is the beginning of wisdom, we're told. We're told that 
Not to fear men, but to fear God who has the power over eternity. Jesus tells us that in the Gospels, doesn't he? But is it really good to fear God? Because elsewhere we're encouraged that God's perfect love casts out fear. Well, this is a different kind of fear. This is the sort of fear you have for a loving parent who, out of respect, you want to honour. It's not the fear towards a tyrant who wishes ill upon you. It's the love and respect toward a parent whom you know loves you very much and whom you might not always agree with or like what they say, but know ultimately is seeking your good. The problem of fear is not that fear is always wrong. There are many circumstances in which fear is absolutely the right response, isn't it? It would be quite unnatural not to fear. The problem of fear is not that we should never fear. The problem of fear is the object of fear. God is supremely the the only object truly worthy of fear. It's not that we're not ever to fear, it's that we're only to fear God. See, God is good, and the things of the world are not. We don't need to look elsewhere in fear. The world may tear down or at least seek to, but God doesn't, and God won't let it. Those who fear, in verse 9, have no lack. In verse 8, it's given us a positive aspect of this that will be blessed. And in verse 9, it gives you the negative aspect, saying the same thing, that there'll be no lack. To be blessed, to have no lack, it's two ways of saying the same thing to reinforce it. And then we get this great image from the natural world here, that no matter how powerful you may seem, you're still dependent on him. Young lions suffer want and hunger, But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. For all the power and strength of the lion, they experience significant gaps between hunts. For all the power, they cannot create the prey. They cannot always control the reality that their hunts are not always successful. No lack of power, but power isn't everything. Power is helpless without God. See, God is good, and the world isn't. God actually has the power to provide that the world does not. And so now, in these next few verses, 11 to 14 here, the natural question might be, that I think David is answering for us here, is, well, what should we do if we want the good life? How do we take hold of it? Is that not what everybody is really looking for? The good life? I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Calls us here as children. Come, O children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord here. It's a paternal call here. I'll show you what this looks like. He's going to ground it for us in concrete actions. But it begins firstly with this attitude, be being willing to learn like a child. See, God is good where the world is not. God is good enough to call you out, to adjust your attitude when you're wrong, like a good father with a child. The world, on the other hand, will want to falsely tell you that you never are wrong, not meaning it, not seeking your good in it. 
but God is good. What man is there who desires life that he may see good, we're asked in verse 12 here. And surely the answer, obviously, is everyone, isn't it? But how? That's the nub of it, isn't it? How do we experience that? Well, through fear in the Lord, we're told. See, fear produces actions, doesn't it? Fear of things other than God produces action, doesn't it? It produces sleeplessness. It produces overthinking or lethargy or distraction or anxiety or anger or on and on. And the fear of God produces actions too. We get them here in verses 13 to 14. Firstly, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit or speaking treacherously. That is, you know, speaking in that way that puts down somebody else to elevate yourself. It's, it's a little more than lying. It's the same thing, you know, when it's translated lie in the, in, in the Ten Commandments. That it's, it's more than just simply a mistruth. It's deliberately giving false witness, putting somebody else down so that you may be elevated. And surely that's always the reason why we lie, isn't it? Because we perceive that if we told the truth, things would work out worse for us than if we told a mistruth. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking treacherously. And that might be one of those things that seems very small, but actually I suggest it might be really huge. Because we all know, actually, the importance of words, don't we? And Scripture reveals that in other places. Jesus teaches us that our words reveal our heart. Luke chapter 6, verse 45, he says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You'll have known this and said this in everyday life, won't you? My mum used to put it this way, that there's many a truth told in jest. When people's guards are down, something just slips out that tells you what they really think and feel. Haven't you heard it said? Haven't you said it yourself that, oh, I didn't mean to say that? Or I didn't mean it to come out that way. Words reveal our hearts. Words dictate our moods. How many of you know that you can talk yourself into a bad mood? How many of you will try to talk yourself out of a bad mood? Words... Uh, if controlled, can control a person. James chapter 3, verse 3. If we put bits in the mouth of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies. And we'll go on to say that in the same way, if you can control the tongue, you'll actually control the person. That if you can control words, you can control the course of your life to some extent. James continues in verses 4 to 5 that those ships are guided by a very small rudder, Uh, They guide the whole thing, and the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So often our words, both those that are wise and those that are ill-advised, set our course. They open and they close relationships. They open and they close opportunities. We know that words can cause great damage. Again, James continues that how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire and the tongue is a fire. How many of you uh, know the destructive power of words over you? Perhaps a label, perhaps a dismissal, a critique, a rejection or a criticism. And we also know ultimately that nobody can perfectly tame their words. James 3 verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. You can't just hope to repress and guard your words so much that they'll be perfect. They won't. They'll slip out 
eventually. The only hope is to be changed. To keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Secondly, verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And it's that same word as seeking earlier on in the psalm, to beat out a path towards peace. Work hard to find it. Work hard to make it. If you want to experience the goodness of God, then firstly, reach out and taste it. And secondly, turn from evil and do good. Put your faith in him and repent from your sin. <clears throat> Lastly, we see God's goodness in action in verses 15 to 22. We see it in two ways. Firstly, we see it, uh, God's goodness uh, in his righteousness in verses 15 to 18. And in verses 19 to 22, we see God's goodness in his deliverance. Firstly, we see his goodness in his righteousness. Verse 15 here, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. And notice how it pairs here with verse 16, that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteousness and his face, his eyes are against those who do evil. He hears the cry of the righteous and responds to it. But for those who do evil, their memory will be cut off from the earth. We see God's goodness in action in his righteousness. And that's expressed in these two complementary ways that God works for the righteous and God opposes the wicked. And he must do that. To be truly loving, he must both judge and oppose wickedness and express compassion or love uh, or, or his love is substanceless. It doesn't mean anything. A loving Lord drives out wickedness with the same ruthlessness uh, that equals the compassion which he shows to the righteous who follow him. God is good, and the world isn't, so that you don't need to look elsewhere to find justice. You don't need to look elsewhere to find the compassion and justice that only God offers when the righteous cry for help the lord hears and he delivers them we're told the lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit god's goodness is seen here in the way he hears delivers comes near and saves the righteous the brokenhearted the crushed and yet god's goodness is also seen secondly here in his deliverance Verse 19 here, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The word of God here is honest. It's not promising an easy life. David hasn't known that easy life, has he? Think of where he is as he writes this. God is good and the world is not. God doesn't give you a false promise of no pain like the world so often does. But he does promise to deliver you. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And of course, John will use this to speak of Jesus himself in his gospel because Jesus himself knows this reality of experiencing affliction and yet also the deliverance of his good father. And look at the different purposes here of affliction in verse 21. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. 
But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. Verse 22 here, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And like verses 15 and 16, you saw that direct contrast and comparison between God working for the righteous and against the wicked. And you get it again here, that affliction happens to both the righteous and the unrighteous. It's one of the recurring themes of the Psalms, isn't it? It's how is that okay that actually... So often we see the righteous experiencing difficulty. And so often we see those who are unrighteous experiencing seeming favor. How do we make sense of that? Affliction affects both of them. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Both uh, the wicked and the righteous experience affliction. And that may seem unjust. There's the New York Times bestseller, isn't there? Why do bad things happen to good people? I often joke that maybe one day when I sort of get the time, I'll write the comparative sort of uh, non-seller. Why do good things happen to bad people? Well, there's different experiences, isn't there? Firstly, the purpose is different. For the wicked, the purpose of this affliction is ultimately to destroy. For the righteous, it's to discipline. And there's a difference of destination, isn't there? For the wicked, it's to judgment, to condemnation. For the righteous, it's to salvation, not condemnation. We see God's goodness in action, both in his righteousness and in his deliverance. As we come to end, share some brief words from the Ivan Illich, he was a 20th century Catholic priest and philosopher, social activist in Latin America, and um, lots of his ideas obviously not quite see eye to eye with. But he has this one great bit of wisdom here. Asked, you know, in his line of work, what's the most effective way to change society? Was it through violent uh, revolution or a gradual process of reform? He thinks carefully about it and answers them, neither. If you want to change a society, then you must tell an alternative story. Or actually, I think we might refine that somewhat and say, if you want to change a society, you must tell a better story. The world tells us a story of what is good, how to find it, and how to keep hold of it. It's a story that doesn't hold true. We all know that it doesn't really work like that. The gospel tells us a better story. The world tells you that all that is good is something that's outside of you. It's something you have to look for. It's something you have to reach out for. It's something you have to grasp hold of and fight with everything within you to keep hold of. And that everything around you is seeking to take it back off of you. And everything that is good is always something you can never quite get hold of. But the better story of the gospel here is that David reminds his heart of, is he's here in the midst of chaos and calamity, and everything around him would say to him, to, this would be the moment to start doubting that God is good, and to, to jack all that in and to go your own way. You're going to have to do something now to make things happen for yourself. You're going to have to save yourself. He reminds himself, God is good. Every good gift is from him. 
He protects and he delivers me. He saves me from sin and he saves me from the emptiness of the poor story of the world around us that says that goodness is something outside of me I have to get hold of, but that I never can. It says that actually it's a person. He gives himself to you freely. The best gift of all the gifts that God gives here is not just his protection. It's not just his blessing and favor. It's that he's with us. It's that he's Emmanuel. He's alongside us. The goodness of God is not something like all those other things in the world that you have to reach out for, that you have to look for. It's before you. It's within you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so David gives us three calls. To taste the goodness of God for yourself. To praise his goodness. And to introduce it to others. Let me pray for us and then uh, we will sing a closing song together in a few moments. Father God, I thank you for your grace and your goodness and your love towards us. Father, I thank you that all that is good in life and the good life is not something that I have to struggle and strain to try to find or struggle and strain to try to keep hold of. That I don't have to live kind of submitted to a constant emptiness constant feeling that I'm not quite there that it's somewhere ahead of me some job I haven't quite got yet some place I'm not quite in yet some person I haven't quite met yet something I haven't quite bought yet but that all that is good is found in you and is given to us by your grace through Christ Father thank you that the message this morning here in this story is is not try harder do better be more but is to come in brokenness and weakness and sin and shame and to cast ourselves upon your loving forgiveness through Christ's sacrificial death for us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you might impress upon us again this morning your goodness, that we might trust in it and that we might walk in it and we might live out of that. And help us, Lord, as you place us in your world, as your witnesses, as your people, to introduce people to your goodness. To not overwhelm ourselves in feeling as though we have to answer every question. We have to know every little detail. David doesn't give that, us that here. He simply introduces us to the goodness of God and says how he's experienced it in his life. Help us, Lord, to be able to be good hosts to introduce your goodness to a world that is broken and lost and longing to know what it might look like to live the good life. So we pray that you might do all these things for your glory and for your purposes on your earth, that your kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.